know, I think sometimes we forget how holy our God is and how broken we can be. And what a beautiful thing that the blood and the body of Jesus bridges that gap for us. As we transition from worshiping through music to worshiping through the preaching of God's word, I wanna invite you to read a, our passage with me today. It comes from Genesis chapter 15. We'll read verses one through six. And you can follow along in your copy of God's word or on the screens as well. It says this, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Holy God, thank you that you would desire to know us, to have a relationship with us, and that through the blood of Jesus, you made that possible. That we were far off and you brought us near, God. That, that we were broken in our sin and shame and guilt. And by the blood of Jesus, you brought us near. God, I ask that you would speak to us today through your word, that we would know you better. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be with Pastor Kevin as he preaches. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd be within each, and of, each of us as we hear, that we would have ears to hear, God. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Stephen. And uh, thank you for that time of worship. Uh, I almost want to say that we could just forego the sermon and uh, that worship was that powerful that we can just stop there. But I'm scared you'll say amen. And... You know, it's, uh, it's, you know, easy to stay humble, you know, when I'm pastoring some of you who are, uh, like to give me grief. Uh, the second thing is we, whenever we um, have done the Lord's Supper in this post-COVID environment, there has been a struggle. How do we do it? What are people comfortable with? Um, you guys are um, uh, beyond COVID. <laughs> uh, we ran out, I noticed, of the cups uh, during the Lord's Supper time. Some of those deacons were panicking because we ran out. So uh, we get the message. You're not sitting in your seat and taking the prepackaged deal. You want to come forward. So we get it. We'll make sure we have more next time. Hey, today we are continuing our series on developing a faith for all seasons. And in this series, if you've been here with us, you know that we are talking about how can we have this strong faith in God, this trust in God in all the seasons of life. So when times are going well and when times are not going so well, how can we say, God, I trust you? Even in the bad times, God, I still trust you. And if you've been here with us, you know that our guide for this series is a man named Abraham. 
Abraham is considered to be the father of the nation of Israel, the patriarch of the Jewish people. And so we started this series by looking at the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where God said to Abraham, I want you to leave this land. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave all that is familiar to you and to go to this place that I will show you. And we saw how Abraham demonstrated incredible faith by saying yes to God and leaving all that was familiar to go to this place that God would show him. But then he got to that place and in the land there was a famine and in the land there were enemies and suddenly Abraham's faith gave way to fear. His circumstances caused fear to trump his faith and he began to make a series of really bad sinful decisions based on fear rather than faith. And those led to some awful consequences, and we looked at that. But then Abraham did not let that period of his life define him. He did not let his past sin, all those mistakes, define his future life. And so Abraham returned to the Lord, and we saw last week how Abraham demonstrated incredible faith once again when these powerful armies from the east came and invaded these city-states around Abraham. And in the process, they carried off Abraham's uh, nephew named Lot. God told Abraham, I want you to go. I want you to rescue Lot. Abraham, against these much more powerful forces, did so. He trusted in God completely, rescued Lot, and brought him back home. We turn the page to chapter 15, what we are looking at today. And Abraham is once again full of worry. He's just attacked these very powerful kingdoms. And in the ancient world, there was this pandemic of retribution all the time. There was revenge uh, battles that would happen. And so Abraham is worried. These armies are going to come after me. And so in light of that, God comes to Abraham. And in verse 1, this is what God says to Abraham. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. In other words, Abraham, I don't want you to worry about these armies coming to retaliate against you. I am your shield. I will protect you. I am your great reward. I am all that you need. Now, God says that to Abraham. And I love his response because I can identify with this response of Abraham. Abraham has this very reasonable fear that he will look out his window and he will see a cloud of dust as these armies are coming to attack. And that his family and all of his servants and all of his animals will be killed as these armies come seeking re revenge. God, knowing that, comes to Abraham and says, you do not need to worry about that. I will protect you. I am your shield. I am your portion. So Abraham hears that assurance from God and he believes it. But since he doesn't have to worry about that issue any longer, he then turns his attention to another worry in his life. Look at verse 2. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. 
Abraham here essentially says to God, okay, you've given me assurance. I do not have to worry about these invading armies. But since I no longer have to worry about that, can I turn my attention to the next issue in my life that's causing me to worry? I mean, I feel like here, Abraham does this, and I'm like, buddy, I get you. Man, I can identify with that. Every year I go to the doctor for my annual physical. In the weeks leading up to that physical, I worry about it. I worry about the blood work. What will come back? What will the doctor say? Will he find anything? And I worry and worry and worry. And virtually every year he calls me and says, everything's fine. Everything's normal. He'll send the sheet. Everything's fine. And so once I do not have to worry about that anymore, I then turn and start worrying about other things. My kids, the economy, oh, my church. I mean, there's some issue there. I will find it and worry about it. And once that issue is fine, it's like playing that old game whack-a-mole. You know, pops up, I beat that issue down, something else pops up for me to worry about. That is Abraham here. Abraham has whacked the invading army mole, doesn't have to worry about that one. Okay, God, then let's talk about what I'm really worried about deep down inside. And it is this issue that hangs over his life. And it has for, a, for several years, and it goes all the way back to God's calling of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. If you were here with us that first week, you'll remember this. God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And if you were here that week, you remember the only problem at this point was Abraham was both old and childless. And for him to have heirs who would become a great nation, that requires a child. And at this point, God had still not given him a son. And years had gone by. He had obeyed God, left the land that he knew to go to Canaan. He got there. He was scared. He went to Egypt. He repented. He went back to Canaan. He worshiped the Lord again. He went and he rescued Lot. He has done a lot of moving, a lot of traveling. A lot of time has passed by. But at this point, there's still nothing on the baby front. And so Abraham is understandably worried. Chapter 15 opens. And Abraham says to God, you're my shield, great. You're my great reward, that's great. I'm glad to know all of that, God. But, but, look at verse 2. But Abraham said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children. Remember the promise, God, that I will become a great nation? God, I don't know if you've noticed, but that hinges on this one tiny little detail. A child and no child has come. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Here Abraham references his servant, Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham assumes that this trusted servant will be his heir. Now that sounds odd to our modern ears, but in the ancient world, it was very common for an older childless couple to legally adopt an adult servant. 
Normally, this would be a servant who had been around for years, potentially was even born into the household as the child of other servants, and had become a trusted individual, and that servant would be adopted and would receive the same rights as a son. Eliezer was that individual to Abraham and Sarah. And at this point in Abraham's mind, it's time to go ahead and start the adoption process so that he... Eliezer could legally inherit Abraham's estate. In other words, God made his promise to Abraham, and in Abraham's mind, this was never going to happen. In fact, I want you to notice in this verse, Abraham doesn't say, God, when will the promise happen? God, notice that I still do not have a son. When will this become a reality? He has assumed that that ship has sailed. And he says here, what can you give me? Since you're not going to fulfill that promise, what can you give me instead? What can you give me since Eliezer of Damascus will become my heir? What can you give me as a consolation prize since you've given me no children? God, what else can you give me since I will not be able to, to become a father of a great nation? No, God does two things in response to Abraham's uh, worry here. The first thing that he does is verse four, he reaffirms the covenant that he made with Abraham. Verse four, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer of Damascus, will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Here's the first thing he does. He reaffirms his covenant with Abraham. And he gives him this picture that will be seared into his brain. He takes him outside, look up into the sky, see all the stars. Can you count the stars? Of course you can't count all the stars. Abraham, know this. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky which is exactly what happens. When you read the rest of the story in the centuries that followed, God was faithful to his promise and the descendants of Abraham were as, as numerous as the stars, as numerous as the sands on the seashore. It was at this point though in Abraham's life that he looked around and said, this is impossible. God, I'm old, my wife is old and we still don't have a son. So he renews the covenant with Abraham. And in this, Abraham responds in this way. Verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed God and God in return credited that belief to Abraham as righteousness. Now, if you've already read the study for this, this particular week in your study guide, you know that this is a central verse in this chapter. This is a central verse in Genesis. This is a central verse in the entire Bible. Here we see this verse giving us a large piece of the puzzle regarding God's plan for salvation. I want you to imagine for just a minute that you had never heard anything about God or Jesus, salvation, heaven, you just one day picked up a Bible and you started reading in Genesis 1. 
and you read Genesis 1 and 2 and you see that God created the world and he created this world that was good. In all of his creation, God says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then you get to Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve rebel against God. They disobey God. They sin and everything that was good suddenly becomes broken. The good in God's creation is gone as mankind rebels against God and they are cast out of the Garden of Eden. And there is this broken relationship with God, this gap that exists between man and God because God is holy, just as we sang about earlier, and mankind has sinned and broken this relationship with God. And you read and you think, well, how is this going to be fixed how will this relationship be repaired? And you get to Genesis chapter 12 and you see that God has a plan. He calls this man named Abraham and he says to Abraham, you will be a great nation and through your descendants, I will bless the world. And you start to think, okay, somehow in some way, this relationship will be repaired through the descendants of Abraham who will bless the world. But exactly how, I don't know. I'm not sure. And then you keep reading and you get to Genesis 15, 6, and you get to this statement. Abram believed in God and God credited that belief to Abraham as righteousness. And you go, wait a second. I think I'm starting to see that the way the relationship will be repaired between man and God is not through good works. It's not through keeping the law. It's not through following a ritual, but it's through faith. It is through belief. And through that belief, Abraham was credited as being righteous. So somehow in some way, when we believe, we get righteousness. And so here you start to see this major piece of the gospel in play. We'll come back to this in just a minute. The conversation between the Lord and Abraham continues, and then it turns to the issue of the land. Look at verse 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to, for you to take possession of it. So Abraham here has a whole nother worry. Uh, he doesn't have a child, but another worry is he has been directed to this land, but he is certainly not taking possession of this territory. So Abraham then responds to the Lord this way. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how will I know that I will gain possession of it? Abraham naturally asked God, how can I know that this land will become mine? So here's the second part of the story that is just amazing and makes Genesis 15 one of the most beautiful chapters in the entire Bible. God reaffirms his covenant with Abraham that he will have a child and Abraham believes that and is credited to him as righteousness. But then here, when they turn to the conversation of the land, God does something that is so incredible and paints such a, a picture of his goodness and grace, not just to Abraham, but to us today. Look at verse 9. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. 
Abraham brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. So at this point, Abraham would have recognized what God was doing. When covenants were made in the ancient world between two parties, often what would happen is they would take an animal or animals... They would cut those animals in half and then they would lay them on the ground with a path in between the animals. Each party would walk in between the halves of these animals, basically as a sign to say, if I fail to keep my obligations of this covenant, may I become like this animal or these animals. It was the ancient way of signing a contract, having it notarized and filed with the court. This was saying, I am bound by the terms of this contract. So at this point, Abraham would have very much recognized what God was doing. It's in the next section where God takes this ancient custom and he puts a twist on it that would have been a huge surprise to Abraham. Skip down to verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants, I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, a bunch of other people who all have last name Ite. All will get this land. So God here uses this ancient custom to seal this covenant with Abraham, except, and here is what is so critical, God leaves a part of the covenant out. Here's what we read, that God in the form of a torch, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch walks between the halves. Abraham does not. God here vows to receive the covenant curse even if he doesn't keep his promise with Abraham, even though Abraham does not walk between the halves. This was the, this was the strongest language and the strongest picture available to Abraham. God here says to Abraham that his descendants will inherit the land regardless of what else happens. No conditions on the promise. God doesn't say, now listen, if your descendants remain faithful, they will inherit the land. If your children's children continue to worship me, they will inherit the land. If they will obey all the rules, they will get the land. If they will do everything I have prescribed, then they will get the land. God walks between the halves and he says to Abraham, they will possess this land full stop. No conditions. It is when we get to this point in the book of Genesis that we began to see the foundational blocks for the gospel being laid. The gospel that we read about in the New Testament is foreshadowed here in Genesis 15. It is a picture of the gospel that is to come. It's not complete. It's not the full picture of Jesus born of a virgin, 
living a perfectly righteous life, dying on the cross, paying the penalty of our sins, being resurrected from the dead. It's not the full picture, but the foundational blocks are laid. The framework is put in place for the gospel. Here's how. This is on your message map. Number one, salvation is only through faith. This is what we highlighted earlier. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This verse is referenced three times in the New Testament to make the argument that salvation comes not through obeying all the rules or somehow in some way being good enough to measure up to God's standards. Rather, it is it is only accomplished through belief. And this verse is used as evidence or a proof text that this was God's plan from the beginning. Let me give you several. If you're taking notes, Romans 4, 2 through 3. Paul says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, by being good enough, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Here's our verse. Abraham believed God. And it was credited to, to him as righteousness. Paul makes the same argument in Galatians 3. So again, I ask, what does God give you his, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you have heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then you turn over to the book of James. And the theme of the book of James is this. If you're a Christian, live like it. If you say that you believe in God, then let your life demonstrate this. James, though, takes this same verse to argue how faith and works go together. And James says, you see, talking about Abraham, that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did or was proved out by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So here we see in Genesis, the foundational principle of the gospel being laid. All of us are separated from God because of our sin. We are born that way. There is this gap between us and God because of his holiness and no amount of good works can bridge that gap. It is only through belief in what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross that we are able to be made righteous in the eyes of God. And that foundational truth is given here in Genesis 15. Here's the second truth we see. Nothing I do will break God's covenant. Look back at verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. When you zoom out from this verse and you zoom out from Genesis and you look at the story of Israel, here's what you discover. The story of Israel is the gospel story. In Genesis 12, God calls a people to himself. They eventually end up in Egypt, enslaved in Egypt. God raises up a man named Moses with this promise. I want you to take these people out of slavery and to a land that is flowing with milk and honey, to this promised land. And God, through Moses, rescues the people of Israel, but they spend 40 years wandering in the desert before they are able to occupy this promised land. 
That is a picture of what it means to be a follower of Christ. If you follow Christ, you were bound as a slave in Egypt before you became a Christian. Once you profess Christ, you are freed out of slavery. You are no longer under the rule of the Egyptians. You are free, but you've not reached the promised land yet. None of us in this room have reached the promised land yet. Right now, we're wandering in the desert. And there are times that we fail to trust in God. And there are times that we get more concerned about food and water than we do trusting God. There are times that we begin to doubt. There are times that we really sin and we blow it and our faith is weak. But nothing, nothing, nothing that you do that I do will ever break the covenant. We have the promise that we will one day be in the promised land, in the land that is flowing with milk and honey. And there's nothing that you can do. If you follow Christ, there's nothing that you can do that will make that covenant somehow go away. The promise is there 100% without a doubt. Then finally, here's the last thing. We'll close with this. In Genesis 15, we see that Jesus is everything that I need. Look back at verse 2. God said to Abraham, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. I am your protector and I am your portion. I am your provider, Abram, and I am your source of joy. This is the whole crux of the gospel that in Christ, we have everything we need, that he is our great reward, he is our power, he is our protector, and he is our true joy in life. Give you several verses. First Peter 1, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Philippians 4, my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 12, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. There are times that I will hear well-meaning Christians say, in the Old Testament, God was a God of laws. That it, it was following the laws as how you were righteous in the eyes of God. And in the New Testament, God is a God of grace. God is the same God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And God's plan from the very beginning has been through his grace, through our belief in this promise that is seen in Christ is how we are saved. And this is the promise. And if you don't know that promise of God, today your life can be forever changed. Today you can receive this covenant promise of God that will never ever change regardless of what you do or do not do in the future.